0: I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up.
1: Adding more and more products and more and more people, it breeds complexity in your organisation and complexity leads to suboptimal decision-making. So our business has all been about scalability and not size. We're large, but it's highly scalable, it's highly focused. This podcast aims
0: to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Welcome to the season finale of season three of Scaling Up. And we have a very special guest to round out this series, Hamish Douglas. As many listeners would know, Hamish is the chairman and CIO of Magellan Financial. And while many people's minds will always drift to how good an investor Hamish is, having compounded capital at high rates of return for over 15 years, it is easy to ignore what an incredible business Magellan itself is having scaled from humble beginnings to now being an ASX 100 listed company with a market cap of over $10 billion. Being the end of the series, it'd be remiss of me not to thank all the guests that have made this series so enjoyable to produce. Your thoughtfulness, honesty, and transparency is always appreciated. I also have to give a quick shout out to Ben Ramalis, who spends so much time and effort editing these podcast episodes. Benny, without you, this podcast is definitely not possible. Don't worry, we'll be back in the new year with another series, but until then, we're going to get on with the story of Hamish Douglas and Magellan Financial. Hamish Douglas, welcome to Scaling Up. An absolute treat to have you on the podcast. What I think is incredible and what I am really trying to elicit from this conversation is there are very few investors in the history of investing who have also built wonderful durable businesses themselves and of course Magellan is now a top ASX 100 business it's got a market cap of over 10 billion dollars so today I'd love to draw upon your reflections and personal frameworks that you've developed as an investor that you've perhaps utilized as an operator and these two are obviously deeply linked the fact that you are such a wonderful investor has been a key to Magellan's success but welcome and, and thanks for joining me.
1: Ed, uh, thank you very much. It's great to to be with you. Just using a sporting analogy, I think you may be a little over your skis at the moment in terms of uh, <laughs> describing us a wonderful and durable uh, business. You know, we have a business that's relatively large uh, so far, but I'm sure we'll get into it. I wouldn't describe it as wonderful and durable at this stage, but it's work in progress and we're working on it.
0: So sometimes those looking in have a very, very different view to those looking out. For those that invested their money, With you both in the fund and and as a listed business have both done tremendously well. So we can uh, agree to disagree and maybe a great place to start is the founding story. Let's turn the clocks back to 2006 and I'd love to hear the founding story in your
1: own words. Uh, Chris Mackay had effectively left UBS and he'd always wanted to be an investor And he had taken a controlling shareholding in a Melbourne-based listed investment company called New Privateer Holdings uh, Limited. And I was a shareholder. Uh, Chris was very generous. You know, he raised some capital. I put some shares in. It was a few years uh, before that. And then really in the beginning of 2006, I said to Chris, you know, why wouldn't we form an asset management business? And, And actually, if we went right back to 1995, Chris and I worked together at Schroders Australia, and we we actually had a joint investment company called Magellan Equities Proprietary Limited. We we were fans of Peter Lynch's in, in those days. Uh, maybe we weren't meant to have a sort of asset management business on the side. We even managed some money for friends and family uh, when we were at, at Schroder's. I'm sure the statutory limitations has gone on our licensing requirements. I about to say, don't, uh, don't speak too loudly. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sure we're just between friends. I'm sure no one will uh, <laughs> uh, tell anyone. But then in the beginning of 2006, I said to Chris, you know, we should set up an asset management business. And he said, "Look, great idea, Hamish. Uh, you just happen to be working at Deutsche Bank. When, when you get yourself out of Deutsche Bank, I'm sure we could do something. So it, it took me a little while to extract myself because I was sort of co-headed their global banking business there. But I extracted myself and by the sort of the latter part of 2006, we launched Magellan Financial Group. And we actually recapitalized Magellan through a company called Pengana Hedge Funds. Uh, And that was a company that was controlled by Malcolm and Lucy Turnbull. People probably heard of um, both Malcolm and Lucy, but both of them were friends of mine. And it was kind of a company that wasn't going anywhere. It was a funds of funds listed hedge fund manager. And I said to Malcolm, you know, would you be interested in us using as a vehicle? Because it effectively had $30 million of investments that could be turned into cash. And Malcolm said, it's the best thing he'd ever heard of. And I think the stock price went up I don't know, 50 or 60% on the day we announced we were recapitalizing this thing. And Chris and I went, Well, whoa, this is not exactly what we're expecting. It was trading at a discount to its net asset value and it went to a substantial premium over its net asset value. So Malcolm thought at that stage he'd hit a pot of gold in, in the restructure and we we recapitalized out. We raised 100 million. James Packer came in, Naomi Milgram came came on our board, a whole series of other people came, and we launched uh, what was called Magellan Flagship Fund, which is now run by Chris, which is MFF Capital Investments today. And we raised $270 million. Oh, no, sorry, $370 million for that listed investment company. And now a few bumps in the road. Uh, the UBS private wealth um, business had slated to put in $100 million of that capital raising. And when it went up the chains, they said, well, we're not that comfortable about backing a former chairman and chief executive in Australia because we may be putting a sort of branding on this we don't want and suddenly we had a hundred million sort of hole in the capital raising and Chris goes what are you going to do about this Hamish well like it was my problem so I said I'll go to New Zealand and I think I went to New Zealand for a week and came back with about 70 million dollars in the week. So we managed to close out in a period and we had four people in a serviced office. And Chris and I had never been in asset management other than of course Magellan equities that nobody had known about sort of 20 years prior. And we we raised nearly half a billion dollars in sort of four or five weeks with four people in a serviced office and no track record in funds management. Chris and I obviously knew a thing or two about raising capital. That was really the the inception of, of sort of Magellan, a hundred million to set of capital to set the firm up three hundred and seventy million in a closed end investment company and four people in a serviced office and that was that was the start of it.
0: Wonderful story. What what is fascinating to me is two investment bankers obviously at the top of their game in investment banking, but no official track record of investing. But what being listed from day one and enabled you was scale and you've just discussed that and brand, but On the other side of the coin is this rigor and process that needs to happen as being a listed company from day one. This doesn't happen for for many companies. Usually there's a scaling journey to the public markets. And so I'd love to dig into that scaling journey and how you thought about being listed from day one as opposed to scaling up to the public markets.
1: Yeah, I guess the thought was sort of the field of dreams when we, we set it up, no, build it and they shall come. And one of my friends, Joe Horgan, was actually talking about that in the paper. She she runs Mecca and has just opened this enormous mm-hmm. uh, store at, you know, physical retailings under challenge. And she's just opened this beauty aporium in, in Sydney in the old Gowings, which I actually went to see it the other night. It's absolutely incredible. But who, she was actually saying it's a bit of the field of dreams as well. Build it, they they shall come. And we we had that. Philosophy. Uh, when, when we set it up, we wanted to go in an area that was highly scalable. We wanted to go in an area where we didn't think there was a lot of competition, and we we picked two areas. One was global equities, um, and particularly taking it to the advisor market in in Australia. You know, Platinum had established a wonderful beachhead in that, but really there was no other real players. In that game, and we thought if we could get some great retail distribution, and you know we, we we didn't have any of the bad habits that other people had built up over decades, been taught by others. we kind of just designed our own process from an investment point of view, very influenced by what Buffett does, but our risk management sort of brought a lot of the philosophy we would have had from investment banking and understanding risk and and frankly, our business. It didn't feel like at the time, in end of 2008, beginning of 2009, the financial crisis was probably one of the luckiest things that ever happened to us. You know, we had a lot of capital. Um, obviously, markets were down substantially. The MFF was down substantially. The global fund that we had launched had actually outperformed very, very dramatically, which was the fund that that I was lucky enough to become the portfolio manager of. And it started us enabling differentiation, but we had already put in place Frank Casarotti, who we hired out of Colonial, uh, who was probably one of the best doyens of the sort of distribution game in the the country. He'd built the whole Colonial First State distribution. And having the distribution people with us and an investment philosophy and a lot of capital actually worked out very well. And it was a wide open space. There, There was room for at least one or two other slots in people's advisors' portfolios for global equities. And that's what we went after
0: maybe we can just zoom into the the GFC for the moment just quickly because obviously you set the business up in, in 2006 2008 through to 2010 an opportunity to buy wonderful businesses let's say 40 cents in the dollar you know absolute christmas time for for investors if you have that long term duration that you had but at the same time you're a listed business and you've seen your own share price really struggle um, to gain any traction and you know at the time I think I've heard you say you were the only buyer of your your only shares and and your mother and and your mother-in-law were the only three buyers during the GFC so how did you balance the operating capability I guess of your business and and seeing the challenges and yet on the investing side it was it was such a wonderful time to have that long duration.
1: Yeah well we were lucky because we had a lot of capital in the business Mm. so you know we Hadn't invested all the $100 million or we'd put some into our funds, but we probably had about $50 million in cash still in the business, which gave us a lot of confidence the business could see it through. And almost irrespective of what the share price was, it was trading at a material discount to the cash asset backing. So we weren't overly worried about the business. We were just totally focused on the investment side you actually needed a relative advantage you know you could only really go hunting for those bargains if you actually had some firepower yeah. and we were lucky how we navigated our strategies had gone down much less than markets and we'd actually taken them to cash so we actually had a lot of firepower so you know we did have a good time in 2000 and you know we substantially beat the markets in 2008 but we started 2009 with 30% in cash and a very low-risk portfolio, but we actually beat the markets in 2009 as well. And there weren't a lot of people who managed both sides of that, both innings, in your, yeah. your terminology.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great lesson for the investors out there, the, the power of a cash balance and treating that as a almost a portfolio company, knowing that you can deploy that at pace when required and when markets are, are falling. The strategic nature of that is... Is So key and, and fascinating to hear how you, you dealt with that. Let's dig into you know scaling the team and the culture of the business. You mentioned four people in a serviced office, I think, and I'm not 100% sure, over 100 today at Magellan. I'm really curious how decision making has changed over that time, both from an investment team decision and, and how you come to those decisions as the team has grown and also key strategic business decisions. Obviously, the the structure of the organisation has seen so much change and growth. Do you think that has led to better decisions, or has it just been a question of managing the process a bit better?
1: Well, I've always believed in one. We want a fairly small team. We want focus in what we're doing, and in each core areas of the business, we have to have absolute excellence in what we're doing because we push things, we push people quite hard, particularly as we're rolling out new sort of innovative structures the merger of these trusts, active ETFs, retirement products, and a lot of these things have never been done before. So right. we're, we need intelligent people and we, we push it. So what's happened on the investment side? You know, we started with three sector teams, financial services, franchises, and infrastructure. Then we added a TMC team. Uh, we've now got a healthcare team. Uh, and we've actually added an emerging growth team very, very recently, As well. So, we've always believed in operating. So, while we may have 35 people in the investment team, each team will be made up of sort of three to eight individuals, and we operate them as smaller units, and each of them has a leader and everything else. So, as we've scaled that, the model has been very, very simple to scale. So, whether we've had 10 people in the investment team or 35 people in the investment team, it still had this small and tight unit fit, and they operate within teams of people. We've certainly added some deeper expertise as we're wanting, you know, bringing Mike Morell on a number of years ago, who was a former deputy director of the CIA. You know, we'd had Janet Yellen on board, who's just had to retire from her consultancy with Magellan because apparently she's been offered a new role that was more important than her role at Magellan. But we do have other people, uh, Kevin Walsh, who was a former Fed member. We've got other people from the CIA who help us on China and other matters. So as we've got more scale and more profitability, we have able to keep adding the layers to the onion in terms of our access to information and, and people. I, I think Janet Yellen, we were the only group in the world she consulted to.
0: Do you think there's an optimal number for these decisions that are being made? Obviously, you have you require some diversity of thought, but at the same time, too many people in the room can really create you know more distraction than than focus
1: at the end of the day size and scale are very different concepts and i think a lot of funds management businesses get this completely wrong they get enamored with the amount of sort of funds under management that they have but adding more and more products and more and more people it breeds complexity in your organization and complexity leads to suboptimal decision making yeah. At the end of the day. So, our business has all been about scalability and not size. You know, we're, we're large, but it's highly scalable, it's highly focused. You know, there are very few businesses in the world that have 11 billion market cap and 100 billion in funds under management and 130 employees in total. Yeah. So, it, it's kind of a different model. And, and you're asking, is there anything else? You know, one of the best decisions I ever made, and a lot of people wouldn't do this, was giving up the role of CEO and to be focused on CIO and strategy. I'm, I'm chairman of the firm, but that's really my strategy hat and the CIO role is in the investment side. And a lot of the complexities of running the day-to-day business, Brett handles, and I totally trust him. He, he's absolutely wonderful. So when you scale these businesses, some people try and hold on to everything themselves, and that's you a major mistake. You beat me to my next
0: question because I was about to ask about the transition to a CEO and, and how that has affected the scalability. What... Again, what I'm hearing is just the the deep strategic insight almost from the start of how we're going to build a very big business and and let's plan for that. And it's fascinating to hear how it's played out. I'd love for you to maybe touch on and describe the culture that you have built inside the business and and how that has in fact evolved over the years.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of the failings of financial firms is this sort of star culture that, that gets created. You know, these firms earn a lot of money Uh, And then with it can breed a certain style of culture. And we had seen that in investment banking. And we absolutely didn't want to build, let's call it the investment banking or typical sort of funds management culture. And from day one, Chris and I said, is we are not going to put the investment team at the center of the plate. It is incredibly flat, you know, how everything operates, including down to pay. The investment team gets paid no more than, say, the distribution team or the head finance people or the people who runs our internal sort of investment bank. It's incredibly flat. And if you went there, I, I don't think there's any feeling that somebody in a different area of the business is less valuable than anywhere else. And what, what, what happens in most asset management firms, they put the investment people up on this sort of pedestal. They carry on like there's some god given gifts to to the world. You know, I still get the bus to work every day and part of that is deliberate in doing that. Chris Mackay still gets the ferry to work nearly every day and the, uh, there's about three people in the office who have a car park and none of them are from the investment team.
0: There's wonderful power in that and, and taking the ego out, well, not providing a platform for people to develop egos, but simply say we are here as a team to perform. Everyone has a job to do within that team, and it will be a respected job.
1: And the thing, the thing, Ed, that normally takes these firms down is hubris creeps in. Yeah. Uh, the, the people start believing their own bullshit, and they start really think they're superior. But at the end of the day, we know markets are incredibly humbling, and you have to keep that focus, that day-one mentality where you're incredibly hungry and you're focused on the detail. You know, people who go round and they start buying all the Ferraris and all the other stuff and they start losing all the focus and they start believing that they've got this gift and they've forgotten what it really takes, which is a lot of hard work. Yes. And a lot of focus on the details. So, you know, what I think you find when people come in the inside of just the complete lack of hubris at Magellan.
0: Love it. Absolutely love it. I was going to serve up a, a sports analogy of The prop forward is just as important as the 5'8 in a a rugby team. It's a pretty ugly job to stick your head in a scrum, but someone's got to do it, otherwise otherwise you don't win the ball. You're listening to Scaling Up with Ed Cowan, a podcast brought to you by TDM Growth Partners. Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. Essentially, your business has been built... Around the people inside the business. The success of Magellan is determined by the the people within inside the walls. I know that you are a, a Buffett disciple in, in many ways, and, and he thinks about it, you know, the management teams are important, but you know, growth prospects, competitive advantage, the quality of the business sometimes gazumps the quality of management. And yet your business has been built on the people inside the walls. How do you reconcile the operator? you and also the the investor in you that knows that sometimes business quality might be more important than people in culture or or vice versa?
1: Let's talk about the business a bit if you're talking about that compared to where we may invest our our clients money. We are in a business with wonderful economics but very low switching costs Mm. at the end of the day and relatively low barriers to entry, although the barriers to entry have actually been going up in investment management for various reasons, but there's plenty of alternate products and it's very easy to switch out of them. And therefore, people are really, really critical to what we do at Magellan. And we know that whilst the economics can be mouthwarting, effectively, we've got a royalty over our clients' investment performance and the funds under management they, they give us. And I think we've probably, outside of maybe some toll road or some sort of gold royalty Probably the highest margin business in the world. You know, Mutai has a margin, EBIT margin of 70%. We have an EBIT margin of 80%. Um, when you get it really right and you can scale these businesses properly, this is a business that grows with our capital. It's extraordinary. But at the end of the day, the switching costs are low. And the economic moat, as we would or Buffett describe it, is, is low. A lot of our moat comes around our people and, and looking after our, our people, our investment philosophy but also then what we do in the business. So a lot of how do do I reconcile the two sides of it, a lot of my chairman's hat is putting around is how do we deepen and lengthen the duration of our advantage Mm -hmm. in in what we do? And we could get onto business uh, strategy, but I, I spend an enormous amount of time actually studying what other fund management businesses do, and outside maybe one or two in the world, most of them have pretty average businesses. I, I, I call them collecting the coupon businesses. And when they, stop, when they stop working, all the coupons disappear. But how do you have something that genuinely has longevity in an industry that has low barriers to entry and low switching costs? So how do you, how do you create something that has duration, is outstanding for an industry that really doesn't have duration?
0: you've read my notes because my next topic is business model and strategy. And the first thing is the most simple, but most beautiful business model in the world of all business models. <laughs> so you've touched on that. I'm interested to, to talk about the strategy and, and the model a little bit more. I guess I'm keen to understand what you've learned from other industries, other growth industries that you invest in and brought them back to Magellan Strategy. I know that over time, you've expanded your products, and you talked about the retirement product. You've obviously gone into infrastructure, you know, principal on balance sheet investing. How has that strategy evolved over time, and and maybe talk about that growing competitive advantage that you that you're trying to lay out around the business?
1: Yeah, well, the, the strategy's really got sort of two prong. The the first one is our asset management business itself. You know, we some we want a very scalable and simple business model. We want to compete in areas where we really think we have an edge and therefore you're not going to find us proliferating products and going into areas where there's lots of other competitors. We, we're we really trying to simplify things for clients. One of the things we're trying to do is build up a D2C business, direct-to-consumer. We've obviously got two wonderful businesses. One is a direct-to-an-advisor business. Uh, one is an institutional business, but actually connecting yourself directly with consumers is a third prong to your distribution. The problem is it's really, really hard. And it's like scaling. It's like trying to catch mice. Uh, how do you do it in a way that you scale that? So we, we do look at a lot of business models that, that have gone directly to the consumer. And the first thing we worked out is we didn't have the proper mousetrap, you know, and, and what we did is we pioneered effectively the listed markets. Here for for managed funds, um, and we we keep wanting to further improve that. You know, our first was the active ETFs, then we did the closed-end listed trust, and now we've merged those two vehicles into one. We actually merged the back-end registries together, so you could be in a listed or unlisted unit exactly the same time. The first time that had ever been done, and we had to get the registries to rewrite all their IT to do that. Is there any form of loyalty scheme that you could have that would be economic in in funds management? And the advantage that if you can build a direct-to-consumer business is everybody has their own unique experience. We all put up investment performance, which is point-to-point on the chart, but but an individual's view of the manager depends on the price on the day in which they buy it. So uh, if you've got all of your money with 20 institutional investors there's 20 data points and you're incredibly concentrated. And we, we, we've got a very good institutional business, but it's concentrated. You get a CIO who changes or something changes and a big chunk of money can can go. Uh, the advice business is concentrated as well because you may get 200 advisors in a group, but they all look up to a model portfolio they construct to. They're dependent on asset consultants, et cetera. If you can get half a million consumers you're effectively got half a million CIOs making their own decisions. And, and it, it becomes very, very sticky. But as I say, it's very, very hard to do. And we've been working on that strategy. But when we're solving problems, we want to do things that don't have as much, let's call it key man risk involved with them. And we've, we've launched or just about to launch what we've called the MFG core series that is much more akin to sort of enhanced index investing where they're doing an infrastructure for, for a decade and with lots of intellectual capital, but that's much more like what BlackRock uh, does, hopefully at uh, more attractive economics than, uh, than that, but really value-adding. And people are trying to lower costs, so we're trying to solve a client problem and, and participate in that. And, of course, retirement is something Brett's been working on for a number of years. We think we'd nearly cracked that nut and uh, we'll be announcing something uh, shortly. So, so it's all about building out the durability of how that asset management business works. But of course, our business, then the asset management business really doesn't need capital and Mm. throws off enormous amounts of free cash flow. We can either just give it all back to shareholders or can we deploy that capital and create more than a dollar of value for every dollar we effectively retain in the business, which is the Berkshire Hathaway test. And, And do we have a, are we creating a license where people will want to deal with us where we will almost have unique positions to put capital to work that literally no one else would have an opportunity to do. I don't want to say nobody else, but a bit like Buffett, people come to sell their businesses to Berkshire Hathaway because it's Warren Buffett. We would love to build up a reputation where people would love to have Magellan. We don't want to control their businesses, but we we effectively set up the Baron Joey Capital, which is Australia's newest investment bank. Through relationships that you know, I've had very strongly over a number of years. Plus Brett, and we put an outstanding team of people together, and, and we we think we're going to earn a very very decent return. I, I don't think they would have done it with anybody else, and they probably wouldn't have done it but for us putting that on the on the table. We we took a small investment in a fintech called FinClear, which is really adding up. But they were going to do the IPO, and they stopped their IPO. And we've got a number of other discussions. That we'll see, we'll, we'll see what happens. Where, where we've learned a lot about economics of businesses over time, and we'd love to invest in businesses that are high growth, that we really understand the economics of, and we can be a partner of those investments. And actually, they become our advocates. Uh, they become our referral network because if we turn out to be great partners as investors, and we're seen to to give some credibility and add value to them. Uh, we may well have other opportunities in the future. So, you know, how do you make your business more resilient? We, we think investing in other great businesses, what are we? We're an investment house. It just doesn't have to only invest our clients' money. It could invest our shareholders' money as well. And if you diversify your business into different asset management businesses, but then diversified in other outstanding businesses, and it's, it's you know, Chris and I called it Magellan Financial Group for a reason 14 years ago. But we've only just started rolling out the strategy 14 years later because we actually didn't have a license to do it outside asset management till now.
0: There's a great lesson for all business owners in that. Uh, the flywheel is just, I mean, it's been spinning for a while, but it, it's it's quickening at pace as the scale has come and I, I don't know. And, and
1: there, there are some other reasons because we, we've got the benefit at the moment of the offshore banking unit where we get a, all our export earnings taxed at 10%. Once we go through a certain dividend payout ratio, we start paying out a partially frank dividend, and we start eating into that. Mm. But every single dollar we retain is effectively retained earnings that we've never paid any tax on. Yes. Um, so there is a huge benefit if we can take advantage of that and compound that sort of tax-free money in great businesses over time, and we think we could. Add a lot of value, and, and, and a lot of people look at look at Magellan at eleven billion dollars. From my point of view, is we've only just got started.
0: There's no doubt uh, the clear strategic insight is immense, but I am keen to understand what are the frameworks that you have thought about in in thinking about strategy. I know a lot of people rely on other frameworks like you know Hamilton Helmer's seven powers. I'm sure over the years you've dragged in different different insights and, and formulated your own. And, and I'm keen to to understand those just briefly.
1: Yeah, in in terms of a framework, you know, I, I think I use lots of different influences when when you think about sort of business strategy and what really makes a, a difference. If, you know, probably the greatest businessman of our generation is probably Jeff Bezos. His focus on on sort of that day one mentality, the incredible focus on the customer above everything else, the ability to take a long term view. To, to be there when others aren't there, of what he's done in the, in the cloud. You know, Buffett and Munger, uh, you know, they, they give you so many lessons, particularly about understanding opportunity cost and measuring that, that opportunity cost. Of course, ethics and focus is really important. You know, the importance of compounding that as investors you should do. I often quote to young people, Ben Franklin, one of the founding fathers of America. You know, money makes money and the money that money makes, makes more money. Mm. I was always fascinated when I was young about mathematics. I was fairly good at mathematics. I used to at university have all the compound interest tables up on my table can sort of rattle off all sort of compound interest and what time and compounding does for you and, and very, very influenced about what you can you can do there. The simplicity of what you do. And I love the Einstein sort of quote, make everything as simple as possible, but no more simple. And that's what we're trying to do, all our products and everything else. We keep trying to take out the friction and keep trying to make things more efficient for our customers in terms of the principal investments. We want them compounding. So it's what the lessons we have learned probably is studying what not to do in asset management businesses. And, and, you know, a lot of asset management businesses at our scale would be pursuing M&A opportunities in the asset management game. And we just look at that and just go, it is just short-termism, it is it is incredibly high risk, and the chance of succeeding are very, very low. The only one that has really worked out well at scale, I would say, is probably the BlackRock acquisition of BGI, which gave them the index business during the financial crisis, just a wonderful deal, but because it's the index business of scale it's such a good business once you get it at scale but that, that that's a technology scale uh, game it's almost not an asset management business. It's just distribution and technology at, at the end of the day. But buying active funds management businesses and trying to take cost out and adding size but not scale to your business is just a recipe for disaster. And so we're, we're very happy to learn from other people's mistakes.
0: That's a great case study of where you've actually uh, lent on your investment philosophy and applied it to your operating capability because the long-term thinking, the organic growth story, those two elements are so intertwined strategically in what you're trying to achieve as a business, let alone how you're investing. So it's, it's fascinating to hear that. What about the future? It feels as though there's been no better time to invest large pool of capital such as the rate of innovation and, and ability to, to compound at high rates of return. You know, we're seeing massive businesses growing at 40% off, off big bases already, you know, year on year. How do you think this is going to play out uh, with your investing hat
1: on momentarily? Yeah, well, the first thing I'd say to you, you know, we, we are in a very unique world at the moment where we've got these platform economics and and I call it capitalism without capital, that you've got these massive network effects like and they're incredibly capital light how they keep expanding. And, of course, data is sort of the engine of their business models and they're still attacking enormous addressable markets. But those, the growth rates will come down and the regulators will get to them and that sort of area of excess return is not going to last indefinitely. So we have to keep investing in intellectual capital and, and I often say to people is one of my criticisms of the asset management industry is that an asset manager finds a formula that works for them. They're in an area and this area creates all this excess returns and then it stops working for them. And then they start telling everyone that everybody's lost their minds and they're just sticking to their knitting. They're going to stick what they're doing. And don't worry, it's all going to come back. And what I look at and I say is, yeah, you get an excess return because something's going on that's mispriced in the, in the markets. And when you're in the area, you participate in the excess returns. But you should distinguish between that factor risk giving excess returns and your own skill at identifying it. Right. And a lot of asset managers, then they never adapt. And what, what you always have to do is adapt. You know, the big tech platforms aren't always going to be the outperformers in the future. They're a wonderful spot to be at the moment. They're not at crazy prices. They've got quite a lot of regulatory risk. But as they take more and more of the total addressable markets and the sort of revenue upside disappears, they're going to come down to more mediocre returns in the, in the longer term. Our job is to, to identify where the ball's headed and find the next area. And I think we've been reasonably good at Magellan is changing the shape of where we invest, You know, we got into the big tech platforms at the right time, but we used to be in banks. We don't own any banks anymore because we decided the excess returns were out of banks and now we're in the tech platforms. And, you know, we've done some old market stuff and utilities as rates have come down. We like them from a defensive uh, point of view. Um, And, you know, we'll keep looking. We're investing in a large emerging growth team at the moment to make sure we keep thinking about what's ahead of us. Can I tell you what the top companies in the world will be in a decade, no, I can't. Do I think these are gonna go by the way that the mining companies and the oil and gas majors and the and the banks were 20 years ago that used to dominate the top companies in the world? No, these companies are different, you know. They they truly are, but that doesn't mean their stock prices are always going to give excess returns. Wonderful answer.
0: One theme I'd, I'd love to quickly touch on is is just the impact of, of COVID on Magellan as the business. I think it, it's pretty clear as investors, how you've approached it, and, and uh, I know cash was, was such an important part of that. But as a business, I'm curious as to your thoughts as a, as a business leader, the, the work from home element, how that affected decision making, all the while, I guess, you know, your teams were seeing wonderful opportunities, again, at sort of 50 cents in the dollar. And so you, you would have had to work around the clock to make sure you're optimising for that all the while making sure that your people were, were healthy and safe and, and still working collaboratively.
1: Yeah, and I would say it's been, a, it's been very, very good, this pandemic, for, for, for the business. Of course, we went on the defence early on because we really didn't know how the, how the healthcare side has played out. It's probably played out in the Nirvana outcome yeah. in the end with these vaccines coming through and the market's probably appropriately now pricing that risk. But what it's enabled to do, it put all these business into this forced business continuity plan. We, we had a BCP and many other people and we switched it on and everyone went from work for home. We tested much of it and that just went seamlessly. So we were well prepared. We are kind of paranoid about things like that to make sure that we, we can cope. And that all worked very well. But what it opened up was two factors. It, it has opened up our eyes that people can work differently mm. and we can give people a lot more flexibility And we're not going to lose productivity. There is no way known without a pandemic, we would have said is three quarters of the office can work from home four days a week. And people aren't just going to be out on the beach and taking the piss out of it. You know, what we found is, is people didn't skip a beat. They arranged their own lives, but productivity didn't fall. Productivity probably lifted. Uh, Certainly in terms of the information we were getting and the reports, and we've we've implemented so many projects and restructures of trusts and all sorts of things have been going on. We've probably been busier than we've been ever during COVID. We've probably had more things come to our investment committee than we've ever had before, yet we've had people working from home, which means the first lesson coming out of this, which I think is going to be wonderful for people's enjoyment of life is we're going to have a world that's far more flexible in how people work. There is still an important social element in working where you need to get teams together. But also, on average, people probably, I would say, at our office on average, would spend at least an hour and a half travelling, 45 minutes each way to work. And if we can give people three or four days where they don't have to do that, that's an hour and a half back in people's life that is super, super valuable. Um, So I think that's the first lesson. The second lesson as a global investor we've found that we've become a lot more connected with clients. We always had good access. I would normally go overseas and maybe I'd take the analyst and we'd go and have a two-on-one meeting with the chief executive. It would be dependent on my travel schedule. We're normally booking these things out three to six months in advance. Um, You're there, you're you're meeting them for an hour, an hour and a half. The conversation is a bit dependent upon what's actually happening at the time. We tend to take a longer-term view, but there, there is some contemporaneous Information. Now we're finding whenever we want to speak to a chief executive in the world, not only do we have the meeting two days or a week later, so it's very, very timely in terms of the conversation. I'm not taking one person to the meeting, I'm taking 15 people from our investment team to the meeting. And the chief executives are completely happy on a Zoom or a Teams call to have 15 people because that's how they operate their lives. They're often doing it from their own home, so they're incredibly relaxed. And we're getting incredible, timely insights. So I would say our ability to, to extract information, have discussions and include a lot more people has gone up dramatically. And I would say that's going to, that's going to last. The, the productivity change is incredible because I would often go to Asia, for instance, to do a client seminar. One of our large clients at James Place, every few years I'll go up to Asia because they asked me to go there did it a few years ago, went to Hong Kong, Singapore and and Shanghai. And normally that's over three days. If you only travel there for the other two days, that's an entire week. Because of COVID, we did a virtual conference with them. It was one event because all locations tied into the same one. And it took two hours one evening instead of an entire week. Incredible.
0: And I think it's also a testament to the culture that you described earlier that people love their work so much that they, in fact, want to be more productive because that choice for them is now apparent.
1: And another thing is we're learning as well that with our direct-to-consumer strategy, a lot of ours are older people. If we previously said to older people, get onto a Zoom call and join us in a, or get on a podcast... Uh, a lot of the retirees who use Magellan products would say, "We have no idea what you 're talking about. You now say to people i 'm going to do a webinar, come and come and listen to us we 'll get six to ten thousand people on a webinar we 'll get up to ten thousand people on our podcast, which is ranking in the top ten in the world for business podcasts now, and a lot of them are retirees. And Zoom, they're going, oh, I do that with my grandkids, no problems at all. And now they're saying, so I don't have to travel and everything, I'd love to do it. And the difference when we when we're engaging with people digitally and by video, we get a lot more data. So it's kind of been a game changer how we're thinking about a business strategy as well. Fascinating. One last question, and it's a
0: little bit of fun, but I know you love your sporting analogies. I, I love mine. You know, I often think of portfolio construction as, as picking a team, and, and you have your experienced players and your up and comers, and someone might, they might like a little specky here or there. Returns, you know, of the fund are, are clearly a scoreboard, and, and I've always thought that good investing is like opening the batting. You you'd certainly leave more than, than you play out if you're any good at it. But I'd love a sporting analogy that you think sums up the Magellan story?
1: We, we manage in our core equity portfolio two sub-portfolios in the strategy, uh, an offensive team and a defensive. And we keep our portfolio very tight around 25 investments. So I think we've ranged between 20 and 27 investments in, in 14 years now. And people say, why do you, why do, you do it? And I said, I, I view it just like a sporting team. You know, I view it as a team we're trying to win the grand final. And the first thing you have to do is measure opportunity cost, which I said is one of the lessons you get from Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. And by keeping the number of players on the field to a set number, it forces you to make decisions. It's easy to make a team 25, 30, 35, 40. You keep finding interesting things, but what you're doing is you're diluting your best ideas Mm. by just taking on more and more investments. So the first thing is, we manage a team with a set number of players and we're always trying to optimise those players. But then I think of them, I've got a team that can play offence and i a team that plays defence. And if you look at our returns over time, our defensive team has been super important in, in terms of market volatility. Our, our We've ended up with half the market downside in a long only portfolio, which is one of the best stats I've, I've ever seen. And that's because we've built such a great defence team and cash with the, with the offset team. And the, the other thing I say to people is the great thing when you're operating in listed markets with a sporting team trying to win the grand final is we play without a salary cap. yeah, Because we aren't restricted. We can invest anywhere. Every listed company is available. They can't say, well, the player's been taken. That's that's the problem with private equity is you're competing over an asset that then is taken out and therefore people may overbid the price. And the great thing with the market, it's very emotional. The price of the greatest players is hugely volatile. And therefore you can keep swapping over your players. And and that's how I think about it. We're just trying to optimize our sporting team with great offense and defense, uh, with no salary cap, trying to win the game. And we think long term. We think long term it's probably much more like test cricket that we are yeah. we are not playing a short game, we're playing a we're playing a long game. And 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 this market, this month with the market rotation, we will underperform this month. I, I couldn't care less. Yeah. It's just completely irrelevant to the game we're playing. That's the joy of not having a benchmark and it's
0: how people should think of of their own portfolios at home. Hamish, I'm going to stick to my guns and and say Magellan is a wonderful and and durable business. And I I think, as you said, it's only just warming up. So I can't wait for the next two decades to see what it becomes. But thank you so much for your time. Incredibly generous. And it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: A pleasure, Ed. It's been very fun talking to you.
0: For those interested in further insights and commentary, TDM Growth Partners has been posting lots of great content lately, including a written series on what frameworks were used to assess great CEOs, CFOs, and non-executive directors. It's probably easiest just to follow at TDM underscore growth on Twitter to get all the news and views there. And you can always find me on Twitter at Eddie Cowan.